Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks for joining a podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show, live at YouTube.com/slash The Bill Press Show. I believe Stormy Daniels. Hey, what do you say, everybody? Great to see you on this Monday, Monday, March 26. The Bill Press Show, live from Washington D.C., our nation's capital. Where over 800,000 people turned out on Saturday to march for our lives and to demand some common sense solutions to the gun violence problem that is raging across this country. Hello, hello. What a weekend. What a weekend full of activity and news and Donald Trump firing another couple of people before they were, well, it's kind of hard to fire them before they got hired, but anyhow, it's just part of the tumult and the chaos in the Trump White House. So good to see you today. I hope you had a great weekend uh, and uh, we're able to get out wherever you are in this great land of ours and uh, participate in a uh, one of the March for Our Lives events. Over 800, 800, of them, or 800 of them around the country and around the globe. Uh, I got a photo yesterday from a good friend of mine who was addressing a rally, a gun, anti-gun violence, pro-ban on assault weapons rally in Naples, Florida, in the heartland, the reddest part of the state of Florida. So this is it's happening. These kids have had an impact, and they are going to make a difference, finally. Look forward to talking to you about all the news of the day and hearing from you about, yeah, the big Stormy Daniels interview. Come on, you know you stayed up to watch it. You know you did. I hope you did. And about the big march uh, for our lives and your experience. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. At BP Show, we want to hear from you. But first. This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, the final four is set. You didn't do a bracket, right? I didn't do a bracket. No, we, none of us did. Well, Villano- Villanova, Kansas, Michigan, and Loyola, Loyola Chicago. Yes. Loyola Chicago is snuck in there. Now they are riding the wave led by their 98-year-old team chaplain. God Sister is on Jean. their side. Yeah, exactly. Jean, she's she's she I mean she's got to be their good luck charm. <laughs> she is very much involved uh, in the team success as they would be the first ones to say. 
So, uh, yeah, that's the final four. Villanova, Kansas, Michigan. Those three we didn't necessarily. And two of them are seeded number one, right? Yeah, so, that's, what I, was, that's what, oh, what I was about God. to say. Those yeah. wouldn't be surprises, but it's Loyola yeah. Chicago that's the big surprise. Yeah, right. Um, so we, we will see. That is your final four. <laughs> By the way, uh, it's it's the end of a run. The end of a run. Yes, uh, over the weekend. Uh-oh. Black Panther was number two. It was not number one at the box office. He hasn't finally lost the number one position to Pacific Rim 2. Pacific Rim Uprising, it made $28 million. Black Mm -hmm. Panther only made $16.5 million this weekend. But that was enough to make Black Panther the fifth largest domestic release of all time. The fifth largest movie of wow. all friggin time it beat wow. the avengers which was pre- which previously held that uh that slot for marvel uh and so now black panther is the best marvel movie of all time in terms of how well it did uh and finally right here in washington dc it was last week just about a week ago that we talked about how joe de geneva was going to be joining the donald trump uh, legal team with his wife victoria tunzing yes indeed it was a twofer yes indeed well that is now over that is now over. Jay Seculo put out a statement saying the president is disappointed that conflicts prevent Joe DeGeneva and Victoria Tunsing from joining the president's special counsel legal team. So they are not going to be. Uh, I want to call BS. I want to call BS <laughs> right away on that. Go no, ahead. No, no, no. They, they, had conf- they had represented some other people, but both, at least one of them had signed a thing saying it's okay with me if you represent Donald Trump. No, it was not conflicts. No. All right. Uh, according to what I've heard, the <coughs> chemistry didn't happen during their meeting with Donald Trump. Take the Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. I believe Stormy Daniels. Yes, indeed. Watching that interview last night, no doubt in my mind about who is telling the truth. I think all you need to know about Donald Trump is her story that uh, he invites her known porn star to his room at the Beverly Hills Hotel, has sex with her and says, you remind me of my daughter. Oh, God. What a disgusting human being, President of the United States. Hello, everybody. What do you say? On a Monday, March 26th, great to see you today. Thank you so much for joining us. It is the Bill Press Show, and we're coming to you live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., with all the news of the day, such as it is here in Washington. It is uh, Easter week, Holy Week, as they call it, uh, yesterday, Palm Sunday, for those who celebrate that. And uh, this week, uh, therefore, the, ent- the Congress is out, I think, this week and next, actually. I think a long two-week uh, two break. But there was certainly a lot of news before they left town, which uh, we will be talking about with you. The big stories, of course, the march in Washington, a march for our lives on Saturday. You bet I was there. The Stormy Daniels interview last night. Yet another shakeup. In the White House, supposedly coming this week, it looks like Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin, his head is going to roll next. And last Monday, a week from today, a week ago, 
uh, Donald Trump announced that he was going to hire Fox commentator and uh, bulldog defense attorney Joe DeGeneva to represent him in his dealings with Robert Mueller. Uh, <laughs> that didn't last long. Before he was even hired, uh, Donald Trump announced yesterday that he had fired or decided not to hire Joe DeGeneva and his wife, Victoria Tunzing. So there we are. Again, good to have you with us. We look forward to hearing from you. Uh, your comments on the news of the day, lots and lots to talk about. I mean, I believe Stormy. Do you? Did you think she was credible last night? Send us your comments on Twitter at VP Show. As we come to you online on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. As we join you on Free Speech TV and as we join you on the radio. In Indiana, Indiana Talks and in the greater Chicago area on the great WCPT. April 4, mark your calendar. Keep reminding you, Frugal Muse Bookstore, 6.30 p.m. in Darien, Illinois. I'm going to be out there joining all of you for a great political rally. And we'll also talk about my new book from the left, Life in the Crossfire. Yep, let's start with Saturday. I have to tell you, uh, I've been in a lot of marches in my life. I've been at a lot of protest rallies. It was I never saw anything like uh, like what we saw Saturday with March for Our Lives. It was incredible. Uh, they're estimating uh, 800,000 plus here in Washington D.C., which could make it could make it the largest single day political rally in the history of this capital, bigger than the March on Washington with Martin Luther King. Bigger than the Vietnam War rallies, which were the biggest yet, maybe five, six hundred thousand. Bigger than the Women's March on Washington, which was an estimated five hundred thousand. And of course, bigger than Donald Trump's inauguration. <laughs> well, <laughs> of course, he was playing golf, of course, during the whole time. Yeah. But what was, what was remarkable is, you know. Walking over there, a friend of mine said, oh, you, yeah, you watch these speakers, you know, this, this is great, but you watch. They're going to get there, and one person's going to talk about this, another one talk about that. It's going to be this grab bag of issues. That that usually happens. It did not happen Saturday. This event was so powerful because it was so focused. It was focused on gun violence and ending gun violence, and we know how. Background checks, ban on assault weapons, ban on those cop killer bullets, ban on those uh, multiple mag uh, heavy magazines. I mean, we, we know what the list is, and every speaker spoke to that. Was, that was one of the things that made it so powerful. The other was there were no tired old politicians on stage. There were no, none of these people who have had their chance and failed. This was the youth of America, the young people of America. They, they, they designed it that way, that not one speaker would be over 21. And most of them were under 18, and they were incredible. Uh, they, were, they, they were short. They were like two or three minutes, maybe five max. I don't know whether any of them went five. Each, you saw, of course, a lot of them would tell them, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And, they, and they were, their message was so powerful, and the crowd was just really passionate. Uh, it, was, uh, it was so impressive, so moving. And we talk about it so many times here. After Sandy Hook, nothing. After Pulse, nothing. After Las Vegas, nothing. You know, go on and on. Virginia Tech, nothing. Uh, you lose track of them. But, boy, Parkland, Florida is different. It is proven already to be different. And uh, I think 
with these kids. These kids have a lot of time ahead of them. They got a long life ahead of them, and they're going to. They're not going to give up. This is their passion, and I think they're going to. I really do believe for the first time, I, it's not going to happen overnight. This this gang, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, aren't going to change, but I think this is going to be the dominant issue in the, in many races in the 2018 elections. And I think we're going to see a different different Congress next year and a Congress that is willing to move and to take some action. So for the first time in a long time, I'm feeling some hope and uh, some good thoughts about uh, about gun safety with, with leaders like this. Uh, David Hogue, right, one of the... Um, one of the most visible, if you will, of the uh, Parkland, uh, Florida students uh, from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The, here's the important thing is the, we, we, we may not be old enough yet, but you are. The only way you can do that is by getting out and voting. If not for me, for everybody else on this stage and every single American child out there, vote for us, vote for our future and help us fight for our lives. And the, the, the big message that, that I took away from the whole thing uh, and watching some of the speeches and hearing some of the people talk, it's like so many politicians for so long were able to say, "There's, there's only so much we can do. These are very complicated laws, and there are loopholes, and yeah. you know yeah. we tried our best, and it's just not working, and we don't really know where to go from here." And now these these people are saying, uh, "Look, it's your job to figure it out. Yeah, you've got to figure it out. And if you don't figure it out, we'll find someone who will." Right, and and David Hogue makes that makes that point here in his uh, in another little clip. When politicians send their thoughts and prayers with no action, we say no more. And to those politicians supported by the NRA that allow the continued slaughter of our children and our future, I say, get your resumes ready. <laughs> Damn. Uh, and the chant that kept uh, over and over again, uh, people picked up this chant: "Vote them out, vote them out." And it was so powerful to be standing there right in front of the Capitol, right? So we're down a third in Pennsylvania, look right at the foot of Capitol Hill, and you look right through the stage, and and right in back of the speakers is the Capitol Dome. And their message was, vote them out. Vote them out. It could not have been better stage. could not have been. The message could not have been stronger, could not have been clearer. Uh, and again, that message picked up. All over the country. I mean, there were there were there were rallies in places you would never think there would be. Huge in San Francisco, huge in New York, huge in Chicago, in Atlanta, uh, all over. Emma Gonzalez uh, may have been the one who knocked the crowd out the most, where she started speaking and then she stopped, and she was silent. And people thought she kind of lost her way or was overcome with emotion, lost her. Then they realized what was happening. She was silent for six and a half minutes, which is all the time it took for that crazed gunman to kill 17 people at Parkland High School and to injure uh, so many more. Uh, she, she comes out of that and says, here is the message that we're sending today. No one could comprehend the devastating aftermath or how far this would reach or where this would go. For those who still can't comprehend because they refuse to, I'll tell you where it went. Right into the ground, six feet deep. Whoa. Good yeah. God. Good God is right. Uh, a young <coughs> that's a young woman. She's a young girl. Uh, I think a grandniece of Martin Luther King, some relative of the King family, 
who brought back the I Have a Dream. Her name was is uh, Yolanda Renee King. I think she was about 11 years old. There were a couple of 11-year-olds who, who spoke, actually. Here's uh, Yolanda King. I have a dream that enough is enough. Martin Luther King Jr. would be proud of her. And Cameron Caskey, he's the guy that confronted Marco Rubio uh, at the uh, uh, at the big CNN town hall uh, right after the, the shooting and demand asked him and pressed him to, to admit that he would, or to fess up and say he would take no more money from the NRA, which, of course, Marco Rubio refused to do. It's, it's too bad Marco Rubio is not up for election this year. I know. This year. I know. I've had that thought Boy, so many we would times. vote him out in a flash. Uh, at any rate, Cameron Kasky is saying, we weren't al- we're not alone today. Look, look, look at how many rallies around the country. We take to the streets in over 800 marches around the globe and demand common sense gun laws. Today is the beginning of a bright new future for this country. So, uh, yes, I, I, I hope you are, too. Let me know uh, on, on Twitter, at BP Show. Uh, I hope you feel as good as I do about the possibility of finally turning the corner, following the leadership of these students and doing our share to make sure that people are registered to vote and get out to vote and vote them out. And, and uh, big story in the New York Times this morning pointing out that this could really be the turning point in the 2018 elections, particularly in the suburbs, because in the suburbs, um, gun safety is a very important issue and a very popular issue among suburban families, uh, particularly among women in the suburbs. Uh, and that's where the Republicans could lose many, many seats on this issue. But, of course... It's not unanimous. You still have a-holes like uh, Rick Santorum on CNN who uh, over the weekend who said, these kids, this reminds me of remember uh, Jack Kingston, another CNN contributor. Maybe CNN ought to take a look at its list of contributors and uh, think, hmm, little, maybe a little, maybe they could follow Trump's uh, lead here and do a little house cleaning. Um, but at any rate, Rick Santorum still on their payroll who says, oh, these kids, don't they have anything better to do? How about kids, instead of looking to someone else to solve their problem, do something about maybe taking CPR classes or trying to deal with with situations that there is a violent shooter that you can actually respond to How are they looking at other people? I can't get past that clip. Whoa. He is the dumbest person Oh, that pisses me off so much. He is... Yeah, easy. No, but first of all, looking for somebody else to solve their problems. That's exactly what they're not doing. That's exactly what they're not doing. These kids realize that the people that they were counting on to solve their problems haven't delivered and will not deliver, and so they've decided to take action. There has never been a student movement like this, even, and I was part of it, the anti-Vietnam War, you know, we were part, as a student, took part in it, but we didn't organize it. We didn't be. We didn't start it, right? We we got on board. This is a student-led, student-driven, student-born movement, and the audacity of him to say something like that. And then, oh yeah, no. Instead of worrying about being shot, why don't you learn how to treat people who have been shot? So let's let them kill as many, shoot as many people, wound as many people. You just should be trained 
to stop the bleeding. This is exactly what I was saying earlier. Like, they're just not going to stand for this type of nonsense from politicians. I no. know he's not a politician anymore. I'm sure he would well, like well, to Well, he be. is. He's he, gonna, ran, he ran for He, he ran, ran for, for president, president at least twice. Yeah, not that long ago. And he'll do it again. Of course. Yeah, right. So and like, he's a former United States senator. And it, he's a total buffoon. He should be laughed out of anywhere that he tries to appear. Yeah. Anywhere. Absolutely. Oh, man. At any rate. So... On the march, it was a great, it was a great moment, a great day, and I was really, uh, really, it was really excited to be right there in the middle of the crowd. Uh, and I hope you were wherever you live, uh, uh, that you were part of uh, part of that movement as well on Saturday, or you're part of the movement. But I hope you're able to get out on Saturday, and the movement continues, and we got to give it whatever support that we can. Uh, and then there was Stormy Daniels last night. I, I got to tell you, I watched the entire thing. I thought Anderson Cooper did an incredible job. And I thought she was unbelievably believable, if you follow that. I mean, you know, she's she's very smart, and she was very direct. She uh, told her story, and she admitted that she'd lied three times uh, and denied that she had ever had an affair with Donald Trump. But she said, uh, and she, she fessed up to that and said, I did it because I was afraid for myself and afraid for my family. Uh, but now she's uh, decided that what she has to do is tell the truth, uh, and I thought she was very, very convincing. And the details, I mean, <laughs> she she told the whole story. So it starts out with just a few clips here. She invited uh, he of course meets her at this golf tournament, uh, and then invites her up to his room and or into for maybe going. She thought. For dinner, she arrives. Clearly, he's not interested in dinner, and he starts by showing her. This is this is so. By the way, I think the whole thing that that interview told us a lot more. It wasn't about Stormy Daniels. It was about Donald Trump. It told us a lot about Donald Trump, about how tacky he is, about how totally amoral he is, about how self-indulgent he is. Uh, and I'm really about how careless and reckless and, and how creepy. I mean, so he starts out by showing her his picture on a magazine, on the cover of a magazine. And isn't this wonderful? And look at, do you think this is a good shot? And he's talking. He's just talking about himself and bragging about being on the cover of this magazine. And she says to him, I'm paraphrasing here, but she says to him something like, does this always work for you? He said, what do you mean? She said, like, talking about yourself? Does this, like, does this, like, turn women on? Is this what you think turns women on? And she said, you know what somebody ought to do? Somebody ought to take that magazine and spank you with it. Oh, God. God. And he says, you really mean that? And she says, of course. He turned around and pulled his pants down a little. And, you know, he had underwear on and stuff. And, and I just gave him a couple swats. This was done in a joking manner. Yes. And uh, from that moment on, he was a completely different person. Oh, God. Yes. And so she has that little spunk to spank Donald Trump. No. And then he says, boy, you are special. You are different. Here's how special you are. He's like, wow. You, you are special. You remind me of my daughter. Oh. And, uh, he's like, you're smart and beautiful and a woman to be reckoned with. By the way. Remember, you remind me of my daughter. That's he's getting ready to hop in bed with this porn star 
who just spanked him with a magnet. You remind me of my daughter. Oh, isn't that disgusting? I mean, people have made jokes about how much Donald Trump loves his daughter and the things that he said publicly about Ivanka, but that is gross. Like, that, the fact that that's... Uh, ugh, I don't yeah. know, man. Hey, baby, I thought you had a uh, wife somewhere, huh? How about that? Didn't you? Isn't there... Uh, I remember hearing about somebody maybe named uh, Melania. Did he mention his wife or child at all in this? I asked, and he brushed it aside, said, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, don't worry about that. We don't even, we have separate rooms and stuff. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. Uh, we have separate rooms and stuff. Uh, that, by the way, <laughs> if you're looking for um, maybe a, a test of her authenticity, that's exactly what Karen McDougal, and I'm sure the two of them did not get together and 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 make sure their stories were straight. That's exactly what Karen McDougal told Anderson Cooper on CNN last Thursday night, that Trump actually invited her, and she had sex with him at Trump Tower, and they walk past, and, and Trump says, oh, that's Melania's room yeah. there. Right. By the way, there were a at couple Trump of... Trump Tower. There were a couple of similarities between the two oh, interviews, yeah. right? Yeah. When she said, he told me that, like, his line was, you're very special. Well, we had the clip. Uh, the other day, right. Friday, I guess yeah. it was, where he said the same thing to Karen McDougal. You're very right. special. Yeah. You're very special. So, and then, so he dangled uh, to kind of keep this affair going, uh, according to Stormy Daniels. He, he dangled this, uh, that uh, maybe she could be on The Apprentice. Uh, he suggests that, and she said, oh, no, no. I mean, that they see, uh, NBC wouldn't want me on that show. And he said, no, I decide who goes on the show. I want you on that show because you're so special. You would be great on that show. And so throughout the relationship, and she says she kind of knew it was would never happen, but he kept saying, I'm going to make it happen. Don't worry. Trust me, I'm going to make it happen. In the end, he did not make it happen. But that was sort of a lure, you know, that he was throwing out there as a to keep his uh, yeah. his, his sex toy and... <laughs> You know, uh, interested in him, um, and and Stormy Daniels. We had heard this before. There was um, a report that one of the reasons that she took this money and agreed to shut up is that she was fearful for her life. She told the details of what happened. It was out in Las Vegas, in the parking lot, when she was um, getting out of a car to go to um, a workout session with her daughter in the uh, in the car. I was in a parking lot going to a fitness class with my infant daughter. I was taking, you know, the seats facing backwards in the back seat, diaper bag, you know, getting all the stuff out. And a guy walked up on me and said to me, leave Trump alone, forget the story. And then he leaned around and looked at my daughter and said, it's a beautiful little girl. It'd be a shame if something happened to her mom. And then he was gone. Uh, yeah, that, puts the, that would put the fear of God into you. Something like that. She I would said, say so. Yeah, and she said she didn't go to the police. She was just dealing with uh, a what she saw as a very serious threat to herself and to her family, and that's why she said that she ended up denying, uh, at the request of Trump's attorneys, denying three times that um, she had had this affair uh, with Donald Trump. Uh, and she uh, actually, at that time, she had told her story to In Touch magazine, uh, they paid her $15,000 for it, and that's when this guy showed up and said, drop that story, don't talk anymore, um, basically, or else. Um, interesting, intriguing that was left last night, a question not answered by her or by her new attorney, Michael Avenatti, is um, 
Do you have any evidence of your back and forth with Donald Trump that you haven't told us yet? You don't want to say one way or the other if you have text messages or <laughs> other items. My attorney has recommended that I don't discuss those things. Uh, yeah, but her attorney did show a DVD in his safe and said if one picture is a, worth a thousand words, Imagine what this DVD is. I've got to know what's on that DVD. I do, too. i got to know what's on it. I'll tell you one thing. I don't believe he's bluffing. I don't believe he's bluffing. Do you? He's too big an attorney. And he's up against too big a guy, I think, to... I think that if he was bluffing, that would be a very bad look. Oh, yeah. I don't think that that's something he would do. That's just my gut. Yeah. That's just my guy. I don't know him. I have a very good friend who has tried cases with him in California who says he is awesome. That he's He seems to have it together. He's I'll got put, it I'll together. He's much. as honest as the day is long. He's really hardworking, very smart, and uh and basically takes no enemies. You know, he's yeah. And he's he knows he's up against the most powerful force in the country. So with that uh, I haven't I haven't asked my friend whether or not about this DVD, but uh, I will find out. Damn it, I want to know, know what's on I know, it. <laughs> yeah. But he said, I mean, he he Evan I told Anderson Cooper last night in the interview. Yeah, if you think I'm bluffing, you ask all the people that I've represented and all the people who've done business with me, and ask them if I'm the kind of guy who would bluff about anything. So when do we see that stuff? Uh, That's I what I want to know. I don't know. What are they hanging and, on? And to? I thought one of the most uh, uh, honest answers that. Uh, um, that Stormy Daniels gave Anderson Cooper is uh, basically, uh, was this good for you? You were 27, he was 60. Were you physically attracted to him? No. <laughs> Not at all? No. Did you want to have sex with him? No. But I didn't, I didn't say no. I'm not a victim. I'm not. It was yeah. entirely consensual. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Again, uh, right. But I mean, just, <laughs> was he attracted? No. Did you want to have sex with him? No. She didn't have to think about that long. She didn't have to think about that long. Were you attracted to him? No. No. And she says, you know, I'm not out here as part of, I'm not the Me Too movement, you know. He was not taking advantage of me. I was there. uh, I knew what I was doing. I'm a grown-up. I'm a porn star. Uh, And uh, and she did, everything she did, she did willingly. She, She fesses up about that, again, I think, which speaks to her credibility and authenticity. Uh, And in the meantime, yes, indeed, Donald Trump, who uh, last Monday announced that he has a new lawyer who's going to represent him, uh, Joe DeGeneva from Fox News, whose main theory is that the FBI was out to elect Hillary Clinton president of the United States. They were on her team. And when she didn't win, then they tried to frame, that's Joe DeGeneva's word, to frame Donald Trump for a crime he never committed. Uh, Donald Trump loved hearing Joe DeGeneva uh, say that on Fox News. Uh, he announced that he was hiring Joe DeGeneva and his wife, Victoria Tunzing, to represent him in his dealings with Robert Mueller. Uh, and then he met them. And reportedly, he wasn't as impressed with them or with Joe, anyhow, in person as he had been on television. So yesterday they announced he's not hiring them after all. This is sort of, well, Michael Flynn kind of thing, right? Although they never yeah. actually got the job. Right. But it's another thing of announcing, I'm hiring somebody, and then doesn't do it. Uh, they said it was because they had a conflict. The real story is we got together, and Trump didn't like him after all. So uh, so uh, the, the, what this means is at, at the moment, the Robert Mueller investigation is going on, and Donald Trump has, because John Dowd resigned last week, 
he resigned because Donald Trump hired Joe to Genova. One of the reasons now Donald Trump has no lead lawyer to deal with Robert Mueller. And on top of that, uh, Trump reportedly told people over the weekend that if he fires John Kelly, he probably won't hire any other chief of staff because <laughs> he doesn't need a chief of staff. Yeah, hell yeah. He's his own chief of staff. Right. Um, please let that happen. Please let that happen. Oh, man, we're just getting started. Want to hear from you, your comments on Stormy Daniels. Do you believe her at BP show? We'll be right back. Reed Wilson joins us next from uh, The Hill uh, to help us through the uh, news of the day. Uh, and uh, maybe uh, some turmoil out in uh, Illinois politically as well. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at BP Show. This is the Bill Press Show. On a Monday, March 26th, two days after the March for Our Lives uh, here across the country and the big one here in Washington, D.C. And I was out there on Saturday representing all of you. We come to you live uh, from our nation's capital. The Bill Press Show, our studio on Capitol Hill, where we're brought to you today by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the great men and women of the UFCW under President Mark Perrone, a proud union family that feeds, serves, and provides for America's hardworking families. We salute them, thank them for the support of the program. Find out more about their good work at UFCW.org. They're the great people that you would deal with every time you go shopping for any big uh, grocery chain, uh, the UFCW. Stock the shelves, check you out, and uh, take good care of you. We thank them. What's going on? Uh, and <laughs> looking across, we welcome here to the program. Reed Wilson uh, is with The Hill, you know, thehill.com. Talk to you about it often because it's such a great newspaper here covering both the co Congress and the White House and what's happening in state capitals all around the country. And that's Reed Wilson's beat. Reed, it's good to see you. Hey, Bill. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. And also, Reed has a new book we're going to be talking about, too, called Epidemic, uh, mainly about the Ebola crisis, but also how governments and whether they're prepared to deal with um, medical emergencies like this and how they how they perform. Yeah, we'll get into that. Peter, uh, we've been at it for a while, yeah. Reed, so I uh, wanted to get some comments. Don't forget, we're on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. We'll start with some comments on Stormy Daniels. Uh, says, uh, David says, she didn't blink at all. She was telling the truth in that interview, so somebody was paying attention to the body language uh, during the interview. Edward, replying to your tweet that you believe Stormy Daniels, says, Bill, you'd believe Judas Iscariot if he had a D behind his name. <laughs> Which I thought was a little mean. Um, That's mean. Yeah. Uh, a couple of other comments. Uh, KG says the threats made against her and her child are what struck me about this interview, which, yeah, I agree with uh, completely. Uh, and By the way, somebody comes up to you in Vegas. Yeah. In a parking lot. In a parking lot in Vegas and threatens you and your child and knows your name. You should take it seriously. Take it seriously. You take it seriously. One of the comments about the rally this weekend, the March for Our Lives, Frank says the rally this weekend and the determination these of these kids have given me hope in the Donald Trump era. On that note, we have put up a poll on our uh, Twitter page, at BP Show, at BP Show. Uh, will the March for Our Lives change the political landscape of the 2018 midterms and beyond? Yes, no, or unsure is the question. Uh, right now, we've got uh, about 100 votes. We just put it up. 75% uh, say yes, no, 
75% say yes, 60% say no, 9% say they are unsure. So go get your vote on at BP Show on Twitter. All right, put me down as a yes. All right, we can vote for you. Sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, Reed, looking at the states, um, that sort of was maybe weaving through, maybe not one of the principal themes of the March for Our Lives on Saturday was, I mean, they're standing in front of the U.S. Capitol where nothing has been done and nothing will be done under this gang. But um, there is movement, good and bad, at the state level, yeah. right, Yeah, that and, you've seen. Uh, just a few days after the Parkland <laughs> shooting, uh, the, state, the Oregon state legislature passed uh, a measure that would uh, prevent people who've been accused of uh, or who've been convicted of stalking or other domestic violence related uh, crimes from from owning a gun. Um, they bragged that they were the first to do anything. But there has been some some movement in some of these states. Um, you know, we obviously saw the legislation that passed in Florida. Uh, most of that was the quote unquote yeah, school was- safety stuff. But at least they raised the age uh, at which somebody could could purchase a rifle or something like that. And I think there are sort of two things that are like likely to make some headway here. First of all, raising the age at which somebody can purchase a rifle or something like an AR-15. And second, what are called red flag laws, where somebody uh, shows that they are a danger to themselves or others, that they can they can have their guns taken away from them. Um, John Kasich called for something like that in, in uh, Ohio. He called for a, a whole raft of proposals, but it looks like that is something that could actually move. Um, there are some other states that They're have so innocuous, it. it's hard to believe that that... That, that wouldn't be just easy yeah. to get. Um, right. And and yet, in the wake of Parkland itself, I mean, there were several states that had measures up within a week or two of the shooting that would have made guns easier to access. Uh, the state of Oklahoma uh, repealed a bunch of uh, requirements that people get licenses or, or things like that, training requirements. Um, they made it easier for school districts to allow uh, their faculty or staff to carry weapons on, on school property. Um, you know, Missouri has debated some measures like that. They actually had something that was coming up on committee like two or three days after Parkland, and they delayed it because they didn't want the, uh, the protesters to show up um, at the at the committee hearings. But what the thing that has struck me, speaking of, of committee hearings, is that at, at the hearings in a lot of these states, whether it's Florida or Missouri or Oregon or California is going to have a bunch of these debates, uh, you see repeated references in local press about the, the need to open overflow rooms because so many people are showing up to hear the legislators and to offer their own opinion, both the, the pro-gun folks and the gun control folks. Um, mm-hmm. But but people are clearly So it has really touched a nerve. It has, and and in a way that um, that I don't think we've seen since Sandy Hook. But of course, in Sandy Hook, there was a cheerleader at the national level. There was you know one figure in President Obama who showed up and uh, and shed tears at the at the at the podium. Um, we don't have that now. This this is being driven by something else, by by much more grassroots organizations. You know that's a, that's an interesting point. I saw someone tweeted out on Saturday. I was walking home from the march, and I saw this tweet. And somebody was saying, I'm looking for answers or does anyone have any theory on why after Parkland this happened and why it didn't happen after Sandy Hook? Well, the difference is that uh, six-year-old kids don't speak out very much um, and 17-year-old I, kids do. Yeah. Um, you know, no, <laughs> I agree. I mean, I, yeah. to me, that's the first big obvious difference yeah. right and, and this is this is a difference that I think we're seeing in the electorate as a whole I, I don't want to 
minimize any any anybody from Parkland, but uh, there is a generation now coming of age in the electorate that is much more uh, sort of used to instant action. Um, this is a generation that grew up on their phones. They grew up. Uh, if if right. you want to donate to to you know earthquake response in Haiti, you you text something and ten bucks goes on your on your bill, and the Red Cross gets that ten bucks. People are are used to that sort of instant. Um, Action, if you will, uh, the the people of the millennial generation and later, I, even the, the like basically the younger millennials and later, and I I think that's going to manifest in two ways. First of all, the number of independent voters across the country is going to go up because this generation hates institutions and there is no bigger institution than a party, a political party. So they're not going to join the political party, but there is a massive gap there in their their ideological views. This is clearly the most liberal generation that we've ever seen. Uh, Check out the generic ballot. I, I was going through the mm-hmm. um, Pew did a great survey last week where they they went through all of their 2017 polls and they uh, asked they they found who had leaned towards Democrats who had leaned towards Republicans and as you can imagine you know the silent generation is the most Republican uh, the Boomers are about evenly split Gen X is about evenly split with a little tilt towards Dems and then among Millennials it's like 59 percent D and 32 percent Republican so mm-hmm. this is the most liberal generation that we've ever seen. They are the largest generation in the American workforce right now. They're not yet the largest generation in the electorate because they don't tend to, younger people don't tend to vote as much as older people do. But if they get off their butts on election day and show up, they're going to have a big impact on, on the midterms. The other, the other thing I, I, I forgot when we were talking about the March for Our Lives earlier, a point that I didn't make at the time, is it is what struck me too. I mean, the fact that all the voices that we heard from were, were from young voices. That the message was so single focused on gun violence. You know, mm-hmm. it was not all these, as you often see at rallies, where all kinds of different issues come up, right? right? Uh, climate change and all, which are all important issues. But mm-hmm. this was focused on one important. And then also the universality of it. I mean, it was black. It was white. It was brown. It was. Asian, it was gay, it was straight, it was young, it was old, it was everything. I mean, mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was almost like, okay, what slice of America would be for gun violence, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, and it was that, 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 that was so, so powerful. Back at the state level for a second, isn't this, I mean, they, they've always called it, and I spent five good years, four good years working for Governor Jerry Brown in his office in California, first time around. That the states, they call them laboratories of democracy. Right. Louis Brandeis. Is that it? Mm-hmm. But today, it's really proven true, isn't it? With the Congress so. doing nothing, if yeah. there's action on, by the way, on climate change, mm-hmm. on health care, on guns, it's happening, and other issues at in the state capitals. Yeah, and we have seven states that are totally controlled by D's, that is the Democratic governor and state legislatures. The uh, I think trifecta? Yeah, the trifecta is right. I think we're at 25 states controlled by Republicans, uh, and, I mean, they're experimenting. And, you know, the funny thing about this, and this is why I love covering this thing, uh, California is going just about as far left as you could possibly imagine. Texas is going just about as far right as you could possibly imagine. And you know what? They're both doing okay. Uh, so <laughs> something is working in those two states. Their, their overall economies are actually doing okay. 
okay. At the same time, you've got a state like Oregon that's going pretty far left and a state like Kansas that's going pretty far right, and they're in real trouble, both of them. So something is not working there. Why is Oregon in trouble? Oregon has a massive budget hole because of some pension problems, some education uh, issues that they've got to fund and things like that. Um, they're going to have to find north of, God, I think last time I checked it was like $1.6 billion to fill their budget hole. So something's not working there. But, I mean, look, you take a borrow from California. And that's, yeah. okay, so let's, <laughs> let's talk. So I find Jerry Brown endlessly fascinating, and, and you, you worked for him. Did you, ever, did you ever see, by the way, the hole in his carpet? Gray Davis told me, his, his first chief of staff, Gray Davis, told me this great story that uh, in, in the first couple of months of his first term, there was a hole in his carpet in the governor's office. And oh, one day I'm, Davis said to him. I'm, I'm sure I've, I've walked over and I've seen it. <laughs> I'm sure go. hundreds of times. And at one point, Davis apparently told the governor he was going to he was going to have a new carpet brought in and fix the hole. And Jerry Brown said, whoa, 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 don't do that. Because every time a legislator comes into my office and says, hey, mm-hmm. I need more money for this. Mm-hmm. I point to the hole and say, look, if I can't fix that, I can't find <laughs> the program. So it was useful. He is he is a fascinating case study in that, you know, we he is he has this image of being uh, uh, you know, the, the crazy Governor Moonbeam, right? That that columnist in Chicago Unfair. gave him the nickname. Unfair. And Mike, by the way, the columnist regretted giving him the nickname Absolutely. Uh, through the oh, rest yeah. of his career. But he's got this image as the super liberal guy. He is the most conservative person in the room in most of the negotiations in Sacramento, which is fascinating to me. And he came, you know, he came into office the second time with a twenty-five billion dollar, twenty-six billion dollar budget hole. Mm-hmm. He's going to leave office with a four or five billion dollar surplus. Yeah, and absolutely. and a rainy day fund that is absolutely full. Yes. Uh, that's remarkable. Right. And, and, and Donald uh, Trump says he's doing a lousy job of right. governing. Well, and as we talk about states being the laboratory and the experiments, uh, you know, California is going to experiment with single-payer health care coming up uh, mm-hmm. probably in, in when a new governor gets elected. It has it uh, has a ban on assault weapons it has, and it's had for the last 10 years, I yeah. think. And, and they've, they inter- in the wake of Parkland, they introduced like 12 new bills right away uh, to get something done. But also they're experimenting with things like high-speed rail. They don't want Jerry Brown's legacy yeah. project. Projects. This is this high-speed rail project that's going to connect the Central Valley to L.A. and San Francisco eventually. Um, and at a time when President Trump likes to talk about how we've got these fast trains in Japan and China, where are ours? Well, California's giving it a try. So there's there's a, one example of, of just the states experimenting. And, and the thing that I always say is what happens in the state capitals today is going to happen in Washington tomorrow. Absolutely. And what happens in California today is going to happen across the rest of the country tomorrow. Uh, and uh, someday... I've got lots of stories too. Uh, I'll tell you my stories, Jerry Brown. So I used to, I used to tell him that Jerry, you're not conservative. You're just cheap when it came to a lot of stuff like that. But anyway, in terms of how governments are doing, that's sort of the focus of your book. Again, mm-hmm. it's just uh, comes out tomorrow called Epidemic, Epidemic, and you base this on the Ebola crisis. But and it, you know, it, I sort of forgotten about the Ebola crisis. Yeah. It was pretty scary. It was terrifying for a while to the point that. President Obama appointed a Z- Ebola czar, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, Ron Klain. Ron Klain. Ebola yep. czar. He was uh, former uh, Joe Biden's. Joe no, I'm Biden sorry. and Al Gore. Al Gore's both chief of staff, and then also right mm-hmm. Joe Biden's. Mm-hmm. But. And yeah. what did you find when you're looking at how we responded to the Ebola crisis? So this book, Epidemic, Ebola, and How many Ebola, were killed in this country? It was uh, In this just, country? One. One. Ab- just one. Just one. Just in one. Atlanta, right? Uh, in the, no, he died in Dallas. Oh, Dallas. Uh, yeah, Dallas. Yeah. That, but Dallas, he, but that's he came right. in, yeah. yeah. Right. And, and there were a couple of nurses infected in Dallas, yes, a couple, right. um, uh, couple others who, who, who had served over in, in uh, <laughs> Liberia, Guinea, and Sierra right. Leone who yeah. came back and got the disease. And, um, and I, I 
talk about a couple of them. There, there are amazing emotional scars that come with even surviving uh, the Ebola virus. It's, it's a truly terrifying thing. But basically, I, you know, I, I talked to the folks, everybody from Ron Klain to Tom Frieden, who ran the CDC, um, and Anthony Fauci, who's the head of the National Institute of uh, Allergic and Infectious Diseases, um, Raj Shah, who was heading the USAID, and, and folks from the World Health Organization and everywhere else. And I asked them, you know, are we ready for the next one? Because the next one, it's not a question of if we'll have another epidemic that becomes a pandemic. It's a question of when. Uh, because of the way the world is changing, human society is moving out into areas that we've never been before. Uh, our cities are expanding. The population is growing. Uh, at the same time, we're becoming denser. Climate change. Climate change is increasing the tropical and subtropical zones. So these right. bugs are... So they're bringing bugs and, ins- uh, you know, diseases that we've never thought of before. Right. Well, that's the reason Zika showed up in the U.S. is because suddenly these, these mm-hmm. certain mosquitoes that came from, that used to live only in a narrow band in the tropics started moving north. Right. Um, and, and by the way, we also have this booming middle class in Africa and Asia, which is traveling more, which means there are more vectors for some virus to get out of wherever it might be contained. Um, the difference between all previous Ebola epidemics and this one is that all previous ones happened in very remote villages in Central Africa. This one happened in an area where there are three cities of more than a million people with direct flights to Europe and Asia and the Middle East and uh, not quite the U.S., but close, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, one stop away. And that, that's the point, is that everybody today is one connection away from New York or Beijing or Calcutta or anywhere like that where something like this could fester. The next one, it could come from, you know, the jungles of Africa. It could come from a bird market in China. And there are some flu uh, strains going around China right now that really scare some epidemiologists. But the fact is, this was our moment to try to learn how to combat one of these viruses. And we learned a lot of lessons. The World Health Organization was woefully unprepared to do anything about this, uh, burdened by politics and bureaucracy and the fact that they just didn't have any money. Uh, And, you know, American organizations like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention really stepped up in a way they never had. You know, in previous outbreaks, the CDC had really patted itself on the back for dispatching a dozen or two dozen virus hunters to go and contain an epidemic. In this case, they dispatched 1,400 people to West Africa. And then we sent in another 3,000 American (laughs) troops to build uh, medical capacity. Now, in a sense, we got lucky that this outbreak happened where it did. Uh, the uh, you know the United States effectively created Liberia uh, back in the 1800s when we. Uh, Repatriated is the wrong word, but we sw- sent a whole bunch of former slaves back to back to Liberia, which caused a lot of its own problems. Uh, nothing is perfect, but the bottom line is the, uh, the America's approval rating in Liberia is something like ninety nine percent. They love us, uh, and 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 therefore the arrival of three thousand American troops was a blessed event. Imagine yeah. if this had happened in Pakistan or, or <laughs> somewhere like that. Right, we couldn't have done it. The hundred and first Airborne would have had to fight its way in before they could fight the virus, as opposed to being welcomed as heroes. Right. Um, and uh, so Ebola's gone, is it? Uh, the Ebola outbreak in West Africa is over. There is a vaccine and, and now new methods of treatment, so we'll never see an Ebola outbreak okay. of this scope again. But what worries people is the next one. So, okay, and who will be in charge in the next one? Isn't 
didn't Trump cut funding for the World Health Organization? Uh, he hasn't cut funding for the World Health Organization but yet. But for the UN. Well, he hasn't cu- he, uh, proposed it. At any there, there are there are certain uh, programs in the UN that he hasn't funded uh, uh, money for Palestinian refugees and things like that, um, but nothing specifically to the WHO. The fact is, though, the WHO has been underfunded for for decades, and it's not a Democratic or Republican thing. I mean, the Obama administration didn't fund WHO enough, and effectively, what we do is we keep our funding level at previous years' levels. Well, you know, inflation changes that, and they they need the the actual funding um, to keep uh, to to sort of keep an eye on the next. So they are and should up. be the lead agency for any the, for the next epidemic. That would be ideal if we had one global uh, body in charge of overseeing all of these particular things and all of these uh, potential outbreaks. But we do have uh, uh, sort of agencies that are like the CDC in a whole bunch of other different countries. And one of the fascinating things in this book is that the Obama administration worked real hard with China to get China involved in the disease response. And the Chinese version of the CDC was really interested, and they wanted to know how to build uh, an Ebola treatment unit and how to safely treat any of these these patients and things like that. Uh, and and part of the reason, uh, two, twofold reason, first of all, China is growing in, in its influence in Africa, and one of the things the Obama administration wanted to convey was with great with becoming a superpower comes responsibilities in uh, handling and, and responding to disasters in other mm-hmm. countries around the world. And the second part is there is a real serious concern that the next uh, uh, pandemic will be some kind of influenza, and a lot of influenzas start in bird markets in China. Yeah. Uh, so the book is Epidemic, Epidemic, Reed Wilson is the author. Reed, the health, the health policy area that I've suddenly heard a lot about and become interested in. And if this is something that you didn't treat with in the book, just say, fine, we're happy to talk about it. <laughs> Are these um, superbugs or mm-hmm. the abuse of antibiotics? Right. There was a big article in the New York. I, I, I led a panel discussion on this, believe it or not, in Las Vegas about a month ago. Big article in the New York Times on Saturday. Louise Slaughter, congresswoman mm-hmm. who just died. This was her big issue yeah. in Congress. Yeah. Eighty percent of the antibiotics sold in this country are used in livestock, not in humans. Mm. In, in livestock, and mm-hmm. and what's developing by that is all these superbugs yeah. who are, are immune right. to antibiotics, and so antibiotics are becoming less effective mm. dealing with diseases with humans because of this abuse, particularly in poultry and livestock. Right. Yeah. And the, I mean, the World Health Organization, and that creates you know, opens the door to right. all kinds of. Yeah. Uh, and which, by the way, epidemics. all of your all of your listeners, if you've got a an antibiotic prescription, you take all of the pills because if you don't kill everything, whatever survives is the thing that is can the, be resistant. Yeah. Um, so, and and the World Health Organization, you know, every year they come out with their their list of uh, effectively diseases to watch, and Ebola is on the list, and so is Lassa fever and and things like that. They have also added something just recently called Disease X, which is the one that we don't know about, and that could be a disease resistant or uh, an antibiotic. Resistant resistant disease. It could be yeah. uh, another hemorrhag- hemorrhagic fever. It could be an influenza. Whatever it is, there is they're now planning for disease X, Ooh. which is a nice, uh, maybe I'll, I'll title that my next book. Yeah, Man. I don't know. What I, I do have to ask you, because I saw your piece about, uh, talk about states uh, and, um, and what's going on at the state level. 
Illinois. Illinois. They've got the last big, powerful political boss in the country. So I wanted to make the comparison to Tammany Hall, and I yeah. I kind of think that's fair. But uh, Michael Madigan is the Speaker of the Illinois State House. He is also the Chairman of the Illinois Democratic Party. Um, when when were you Chairman in California? Uh, ninety three, ninety six. All right, so he was he he became chairman just after you left. Yeah, he so, wasn't chair when I but, was. But but still, the, the guy's been chair of the state Democratic Party since nineteen ninety eight, so twenty years. Yeah, um, he has been the speaker of the house for all but two of the last thirty five years. Um, mm. He is mm. he is the single most powerful political boss in America. He's today. boss tweed. He 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 almost is. He almost yeah. is. Um, and when and when you talk to Democrats in in Illinois, even the ones who are predisposed to oppose the sort of the old machine politics, they'll never talk on the record. They're very careful because he is so powerful there, and they fear incurring his wrath. Uh, he, however, has a bit of a Me Too issue. Not himself; he has not oh. been accused of any yeah. improper behavior. But two staffers uh, in his or po- very powerful political organization um, have been. Ac- Excuse me. Have been accused yeah. of rampant harassment, um, and his response was the response of a seventy-five-year-old guy who doesn't understand this sort mm. of generational change taking place. So, uh, Mike Madigan is fascinating. The Illinois politics at large are fascinating. Chicago politics even more fascinating. And epidemic is fascinating. The latest book out by Reed Wilson out tomorrow. Available in all the places you can get your books, Amazon.com or whatever. And we'll have a link on our website. This and thank you, Reed Wilson. The Bill, Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. I believe Stormy Daniels. What's the whole thing? Uh, credible to me. No doubt about it. She's telling the truth, and Donald Trump is not. Hello, everybody. What do you say on a Monday, March 26th? How good to see you. Hope you had a great weekend. It was a busy weekend. An incredible experience on Saturday to join the March for Our Lives here in Washington, D.C. Uh, they're calling it probably the largest ever one-day political rally in the history of this country, in the history of this our nation's capital. Uh, and then uh, yesterday, Stormy Daniels uh, heading off, looking. For, uh, we'd all look forward to that interview, and uh, 60 Minutes gave it a whole half hour last night. And we'll cover that in a whole lot of the rest of the news of the day with all of you. Uh, that's why we're glad to have you with us. You know how to uh, give us your comments by going on Twitter, uh, at BP Show. Uh, Let us know what you think about the news of the day. Got a great lineup of guests, and joining us this half hour, uh, the head of the great organization, Media Matters for America. Um, I've been praising, I'm working with Media Matters ever since they were created. Uh, Angelo Carasone here in studio with us, president of Media Matters. Angelo, good to see you. Nice to see you as well. Uh, was this the biggest ever 60 Minutes uh, t- 
television audience last night? Do we I mean, know it yet? It was certainly a really big one. I, I mean, the last time I think there was this much hype for it was actually on the on the right wing side when they pushed that really big Benghazi story that turned out to be a, a total bust. If you remember, oh yeah, but, yeah, yeah that, and that was the that was the last time that I saw a similar buildup. Although it was obviously all all phony, and they they got burned pretty pretty bad. They got burned pretty yeah. badly on yeah, that, right? Yeah, uh, I think they learned their lessons though. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Anyway, good to have Angela with us. Good to have you with us. We'll dive into the news of the day, but first. This is the full court with the headlines here. You got it. Just a couple of other stories making news. Well, this is a little scary. Uh, at the end of last week, NASA announced that there is an asteroid heading straight for Earth. Another one? Yes. Duck and cover. September twenty huh? second, two thousand one hundred thirty five. Oh, is when they expect this asteroid. Two thousand one hundred thirty five. Two th- twenty one thirty five. I definitely won't be. So one hundred seventeen years away. Oh, okay. So just, I'm just, it's a Thursday, by the way, in case you're oh. making plans. <laughs> Make sure I, I double checked. It is a Thursday. Yeah, wait, we're on a weekend. <laughs> uh, there's an asteroid a third of a mile across. They've named this asteroid Bennu, and they say it will slam into Earth with an impact energy equivalent to the currently deployed arsenal of U.S. nuclear ballistic missiles. But don't worry, NASA has a plan. They have been working on different exercises to figure out how they could stop this thing. So they are either going to ram into it or target it with a nuclear device if it looks like it's actually going to strike us. Because, again, if it's an asteroid that's a third of a mile wide, if it comes barreling into a place like, you know, Washington, D.C. or New York City, that can cause a lot of damage. So they're trying to figure out how to blow it up or move it or just get it the hell out. They got 117 years to figure it out, Bill. Good. I'm glad somebody's on this case. I am not going to worry about it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You shouldn't worry about it too, too much. You shouldn't worry about it too, too much. By the way, whatever whatever you think, this next story, do not get excited about. This is not a happy story. Remington, well, the build up. Remington, the oldest gun manufacturer in America, has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. <laughs> <laughs> they did this yesterday. They said that because of slumping sales, they are going to, which which is That's weird. still hard to believe. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, it was hard for me to believe. It's probably they because found, they're not, not making AR-15. Yeah, fair. <laughs> they, are, they founded the company more than 200 years ago and i really honestly can't think of a better exclamation point to put on the weekend of the march for our lives than to have the oldest gun manufacturer in america say that they have to file for chapter 11. i know when i saw that this morning that's my first thought boy that march was more powerful than we thought (laughs) we have our first casualty here of uh yeah i wish there were i wish there were a connection yeah so again they've been around since 1816 and they have to file for chapter 11 so uh, Good yeah. riddance. Uh, it's too bad there are not more, and and some of the ones that are again making the assault weapons are not doing that. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed. The morning after the big interview, I believe Stormy Daniels. What do you say? Hello, everybody. Great to see you today on a Monday, Monday, March 26th, the Bill Press Show. Here we are. Joining you online across this great land of ours on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Joining you on television, coast to coast on Free Speech TV. Great to see you out there in TV land and out in the greater Chicago area 
the progressive voice of Chicago, WCPT. Welcome, welcome. Hope you had a great weekend. Now get ready to dive into the news of the day on this first day of uh, Holy Week. Angelo Carasone, the president of Media Matters for America, joins us in the studio. Angelo, it's always good to see you. Likewise. Thank you again. And I always tell you, Media Matters, mediamatters.org. Check it out. Uh, the one greatest source for exposing the lies we hear from the right-wing media and from uh, the current administration and the president of the United States. Um, boy, so much to talk about. But let's start with the with the interview last night. Um, I do think that she... Didn't blink. She was very credible. Yeah. Came across authentic to me. I thought so. I thought completely so. I thought she was really, yeah, completely authentic, transparent, uh, and absolutely credible. You and, know, yeah. at, at the very end, Peter, that very last clip I thought was maybe at her most honest, where she said she wasn't trying to pretend to be anything other than who she is. She's very honest about that. And that she didn't really like this guy, but she still went along with us. Here's Anderson Cooper right at the very end of the interview. You were 27, he was 60. Were you physically attracted to him? No. Not at all? No. Did you want to have sex with him? No. But I didn't, I didn't say no. I'm not a victim. I'm not... It was yeah. entirely consensual. Oh, yes. Yeah. So she had pretended otherwise. Yeah. You would have seen through it, right? Oh, completely. I think that she... and Because I, I, I don't think that she set out to even try to draw this sort of attention to herself. I do think that she largely set out because of the fact that they were lying about her. Uh, and, you know, in, given his platform and the fact that, he, you know, the, the lies actually could end up, I think, feeding a larger narrative that he was trying to push out there, she was willing to defend herself. And that's largely what the impetus for push. This is not easy for her. I mean, she's been I, I don't think that in any way she gets anything out of, out of this. I mean, she talks about the fact that it's boosted her a little bit, but the damage isn't worth it. I mean, even she, she was I think her argument about her family was pretty, pretty real and legitimate, too. Yeah, I mean, Anderson pointed out you might get a good book deal out of this, and I think she probably could. But she also said she's also that people could turn against her because of this too. Yeah, right? without a doubt. Yeah, it cuts both ways. I mean, it's a, there was a huge risk in liability, the of the public perception side of it. Just just putting well, every time you when you're not in the political space, anytime you taint your profession with politics, there's an enormous risk, and almost always is there a downside to doing that. How about the fact that she admits she denied three times in writing? That she had had any an affair with Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that I think the argument for why she did that makes makes a lot of sense too. One, there is I don't think we can discount the intimidation and the harassment factor. I mean, the idea that Trump's people, um, associates or others, threaten um, not just legal action but other forms of violence um, is real. She's not the first person to make these kinds of claims. Um, I don't think we can get discount why you would just want that to go away. Um, and and so I, I I think her reasons for why she just you know. Said it, swept it, swept it under the rug, and it just wasn't a thing uh, for her. Uh, is 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 fair and legitimate? She owns that. Right. The one thing that uh, that struck me also, uh, another thing that struck me about her is, um, I think in a see if you agree that I believe in a sense at least Donald Trump has met his match. He is the master manipulator of of the media without a doubt for self-promotion yep. he has met his match in stormy Daniels. she absolutely understands the media she's extremely <laughs> media savvy um she really does get it in every yeah, meaningful right. way um it must drive him freaking crazy and there's a you know one thing that his you know his approach is co to consistently mm -hmm. oversell um and that's what gets the conversation that's how he sort of primes the pump to sort of get the conversation going and she's a little bit on the opposite end of the spectrum which is that um she's not overselling this stuff mm -hmm. she's not inflating salacious uh, you know events she's 
you know, there's some parts of it that are, I think, automatically tantalizing, but she's very mindful not to make it seem more extreme or exaggerated than it actually is. It's it is it's a very different approach, but ultimately the same capabilities. And you know, the the uh, the other side is always trying to undermine people and find ways, you know, to question their uh, their credibility. I guess. So one argument I've seen uh, raised against her is. Who's she representing? Who's she fronting for? Who is paying for her multi-million dollar publicity campaign? Um, my take on that is, I don't think anybody's paying. I don't think, I mean, what's the what's the cost, right? I mean, 60 Minutes didn't pay her. For no, that. Right, she's not, She's right. certainly on the PR front, she's not paying some big firm to, to gin this up out of nothing. Um, the yeah. media rightfully is reaching out to her because right. there's a story yeah. there, and yeah. she uses you know her her push to social media helps reinforce that and continue to build that narrative. That doesn't require a PR firm, um, and she doesn't really get anything out of this personally. The only thing that uh, which they haven't pushed on because I think it's somewhat I mean, it might, credible. So, so maybe she had a. The cost of a plane ticket right. to New York. That's it. Yeah, a lot of it she's p- p- paying for herself. And, you know, as it relates to, especially early on, the idea that there might be a protracted litigation um, or uh, even, you know, before they sort of mo- moved on this front, the idea that you'd get a GoFundMe or a public campaign yeah. for people to put donations so that you feel comfortable enough to engage in that fight. I, When Donald Trump threatened to sue me, I did the same thing. Um, whoa, you know, before whoa, I, whoa, 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 whoa. Donald Trump threatened to sue you. Yeah, $25 million. Uh, a couple of years ago because of a campaign that I was running and 30 days. I didn't do anything for 30 days while I, you know, basically got commitments and support and legal support to make sure that if I proceeded and he sued me that I had enough resources to continue to defend myself. So, and that's why I don't think there's anything nefarious there because even if he did do it, I needed to spend all that money. Um, I wouldn't have gotten anything out of it. Still, would have been a nightmare. So he was running for president then. Uh, it was bef- right before he ran for president. And uh, you were at Media Matters. I was still at Media Matters, and I was acting in my personal capacity to get him fired from Macy's. Um, and it was from Macy's. Macy's, yep. And they, uh, because they were selling his products. That's right. And there was yeah. a really serious partnership there between the two of them, and especially in the in the realm of promotion. And the campaign really took off, and it, it obviously it bothered him quite. But this quite was a bit. his deal, wasn't it? To, I mean, he had, he had hundreds of lawsuits going. Right. This was yeah. to anybody that got in his way in any way. Yeah. It, 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 uh, he threatened to sue them. Oh yeah. And Michael Cohen, you know, I was doing a radio show once. Michael Cohen called in randomly and just started like berating and attacking me. And of course, the radio host put him on the air. But I mean. We got into this, but I mean, this is so. None of the stuff that she was saying last night was all that surprising. There, they sort of swoop in, they make these really grand gestures. You know, Michael Cohen was on the phone with reporters constantly, trying to attack my credibility, and he was saying I signed the petition myself seven hundred thousand times, things like that. (laughs) Um, You know, so I mean, they're they think they operate with, to your point, the same standard playbook. It's this overwhelming sort of force, or at least the perception of overwhelming force. So. Uh, and the, at least as a you know, that's the only area where I could say, hey, you know, they're lining up all the support for her, but she doesn't get anything out of it, and it's just to make sure that if this does go forward, there's enough there. What happened to your lawsuit? Uh, he, he sent a bunch of tweets one night, um, like three thirty in the morning, that completely contradicted everything that his lawyers were saying, and um, the next morning, uh, you know, they, we basically they basically gave up. They dropped the, the. They had to. I mean, it just for months they were saying one thing, and then he woke up in the middle of the night and sent it, tweeted a bunch of stuff that was a hundred percent contradictory. That Boy. seems to be a pattern, that, by the yeah. way. I know. I was yeah. just going to say that's the <laughs> that's the playbook. His lawyers seemed pretty exasperated at the whole thing because they had been pushing it for months. This this idea that there was real meaningful damage, and then. 
he woke up and said his you know the ties were selling more than ever thanks to me and all kinds of other stuff which was also not true but it, it didn't matter it, he couldn't sustain the lawsuit at that point right um so you're uh, and michael avenatti her attorney uh last night i thought also came across as Great. A guy I'd want on my side. Yeah, yeah, sure. he's he he is very capable. I mean, um, he really understands visual aids. I, I mean, he was debating Michael Cohen's uh, attorney a, a, a couple of days ago and brought up this picture of him. And he was he's very mindful about that part of it. I think they're both really savvy players. Do you believe that Michael Cohen paid uh, Stormy Daniels one hundred and thirty thousand dollars out of his own pocket uh, with Donald Trump knowing nothing about it? No, I'm not really. No. Definitely not. Or I, I, I just don't. I, I think that they he, he was just too invaluable and too in sync. And nothing over there happened without Trump knowing it. And that's how things operated. So, um, no, I don't. And we'll see. I don't know what the next step is in the Stormy Daniels thing. But then also there's Karen. But by the way, it's a great parallel between Karen McDougal's story that she told Anderson Cooper last Thursday and Stormy Daniels' story in yeah. terms of his M.O. and That's right. Really taking similar. them both to Trump Tower. That's right. I mean, it's the same. I mean, because that for him, you know, the thing about Trump is he is really proud of a few things and not many things. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's the, and that's the thing. He really goes. So at the time, if you know, if you go back, he would always talk about Celebrity Apprentice's ratings. He was really proud of that show. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. he was really proud of it. And even though he had all these other things, that was something that he had great pride. You don't really see him other than that big that big show that he did, you know, with the during the campaign with the Trump steaks and the Trump wine stuff. Oh, right. He didn't really he wasn't really proud of Trump wine, you know, <laughs> um, but he was really proud of his uh, of the NBC apprentice. And he was really he's really proud of Trump Tower. Right. Um, not the location, the fact that he has two flagship stores in there, Gucci and Nike, he talks about because those are the, I, they're not just stores, they're like headquarters kind of things. I mean, they give him a great sense of pride. He and he always goes back to them. There is standby. So it's a cycle and a pattern. From a media point of view, um, there's been nothing like 60 Minutes, has there? I mean, in no. terms of... It's the gold it, standard. It, it really is. It really is. is. Yeah, yeah. I thought it For how many years now? I yeah. don't know. But uh, yeah. And they keep, uh, you, know, you know, SNL up and down and whatever, but 60 Minutes has just been steady. It's the gold. That's why it was so dramatic when they messed up that Benghazi story. Um, and it does show the issues of media concentration because the guy that they were promoting was somebody that CBS... His book publisher, you know, he had the book for, and so it was kind of a synergy in terms of, a, Whoa, and, and yeah. that, and 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 I think that in that one instance when they scaled back some of their editorial standards in order to let this go through, it was because of that, that, but that instance was such a big deal in part because. But for the fact that CBS had ran with that story, you know, this mm -hmm. this dramatic thing about the contractor running in the opposite direction. And, you know, I mean, that no, that no one else would have given that story any credibility or credence. And um, but other than that, really one meaningful flap, uh, uh, there really just isn't anything close to it. They just do the the best work and the, the best vetting. Media Matters for America, mediamatters.org is the website. Angelo Carasone, the president, you've been doing a lot on your great team at Media Matters, on this whole flap over Facebook. Yeah. How could this happen that, I mean, as Jeff Zuckerberg says, I'm very sorry. Yeah, well. I think I mean, that. Um, it, it, the private data on 50 million Americans that, that they knew people were taking it, didn't they? They did, and and the, they they knew, and they didn't follow through with how they were that's using right. it. That's right, and I think that that's the part that's really <laughs> at issue here is that you know people gave this data to this research company, um, like they do for a lot of the apps that they sign up for, and that's something that. 
know, Facebook and other platforms need to make it more accessible and easier, but people also need to manage that themselves to an extent. You know, people just click the terms of service button, they don't pay attention. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, uh, what the app developer did was give that, because the app developer was really Cambridge Analytica in disguise. You know, they posed and propped up this phony research operation to get access to this information. And then the app data gave it to Cambridge. Um, they made a copy of it, basically, which they shouldn't have done. Um, so when Facebook turned off Cambridge's access to it, um, fine. The thing that concerns me, and this gets back to the how did this all happen, is that, one, we it, it, there's pretty clear evidence that there's copies of this exact same data set elsewhere, um, whether it be with Trump's super PAC uh, or with his own campaign. Um, because or have it with the John Bolton right or problem. with exactly because of the fact that the, while many of them were using the services, um, some of them were actually going so far as to integrate their databases, and that's where the difference starts to come in. That they actually have copies of it that are still in use. So that's one thing. Um, how it happens is really ultimately the big story of how fake news and disinformation happened in 2016, which is that on the one hand, Facebook has an effort to mollify some of their critics uh, and weren't, weren't proactive enough. Um, and on the other hand, they just kept getting duped. So, you know, when they fired all of the human editors um, after that story that they were censoring conservative content, yes, yes. Um, there was a threefold increase in the reach of fake news. For the first time, it exceeded the, uh, the overall reach of all of real news sources combined. Um, just from that one change overnight. Um, Trump's suppression campaign would have never been able to happen if they didn't turn it over to an automated approval process instead of human uh, editor, uh, uh, advertising people that are reviewing that stuff. And it was all, you know, one time and again, they just kept giving So when in. you say the, the fake news expanded its reach or yep. extended its reach, what, what, are you, what are you including in that umbrella? I mean, like Breitbart or? No, I wouldn't no. even include Breitbart. I would consider Breitbart to be hyper ideological. So I think in order oh. to be fair, when I uh, when I say fake news, I mean a hundred percent fabricated content, um, where the source is, uh, you know, like like the Emma, like like the story yesterday with the the Parkland student ripping up the Constitution, but it's not the Constitution. It was photos like that's fake, total fabrications. Hmm. Um, there's not even a kernel of truth mm -hmm. in there. Um, you know, there are really there's a clear network of fake news purveyors. Who's um, putting it out there? A lot of times it's individuals that are not ideological at all, um, that they're going to these message board communities, they're looking for stories that are getting the, the best traction, uh, and then they're writing it up to get traffic because they make five to 10,000 bucks a post uh, from some of this stuff. I mean, real traffic was being driven to these websites during the 2016 campaign. And so, uh, but if you look at the numbers prior to Mark Zuckerberg making that change in May of 2016, the reach the overall um, uh, amount of people that had, were exposed to this was pretty stable. Uh, once he made that change, a lot of this stuff started making its way into the trending topic sections on Facebook, which meant more and more people were seeing it. Um, and it just spills over. And, and, and a threefold increase almost overnight. How are they getting five to $10,000 a post? So most of them actually use Google AdSense to monetize. <laughs> and, um, and the traffic from these places is, can be extreme. Uh, so it's not every post fight, but the right. viral ones. But I, so, I, we, we found a. a but a, you know, it, it, I, yeah. I'm not. This is not my long suit, but because we, Peter, we've talked about, and I guess we have some Google ads or have had. I'm not really we sure. We have but, in the past, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, they're. You don't get a lot for a Google ad. You have to have a huge, huge. amount of traffic That's right. to, for it to mount to any real money. Uh, totally. Right? And I think that one thing that I think, and this applies everywhere, is you know, when we went back and did an analysis of the Facebook pages, um, which are the really ones that really push traffic, um, 
you know, we made the cutoff at a million and then we coded them, uh, you know, mainstream, left, left leaning, right leaning. By just doing that, we found a two and a half times asymmetry. The aggregate size of right leaning Facebook networks with pages in excess of a million was 251 million. The aggregate size for all mainstream, including entertainment, mm. was 247 million. Including and, entertainment. That's right. And the aggregate size for left-leaning pages that pushed 100 mm -hmm. million. So even that alone, <laughs> that asymmetry is yeah. very significant. And if you go down the chain, so if you went down, if we included that to be 500,000, it would be way different. So the one thing that, I, especially because of the way the filter bubble plays out, um, but ultimately the right wing has an enormous distribution so, advantage. So they Facebook. have taken over the social media? Uh, in some communities, yeah, I think uh, YouTube in particular, it doesn't feel like it is, but absolutely, you know, uh, there are a few top influencers on YouTube that really are uh, either mainstream or left-leaning, but after that, when you start going down, um, it's just a cesspool of, of, of right-wing or sort of the new right or men's rights advocates, you know, they wouldn't even necessarily define themselves as conservatives, but I put men, the men's rights community in the same So bucket. YouTube, take right. over. Uh, it's like Face talk radio for young people. Basically, is how, how I think about it. Uh, and same with Facebook. They, Facebook also. That wasn't always the case. What happened is after the 2012 election, um, conservative donors gave a bunch of money to Brent Bozell and a couple others, mm -hmm. and they just started building up these Facebook communities. Um, the idea being that, look, we need to organize our people so we can drive traffic. Maybe we can help you know, influence reporters' coverage a little bit if they think that it, they can get traffic from us. But a lot of that, that really is what kickstarted it, um, this process of shifting the balance. Um, and then, you know, you couple that with the fact that there's this culture of just trolling, harassment and abuse on the right. Increasingly, people on the, the barrier to participation on the left keeps going up. Every time I post something about this, I get a blowback. You just don't do it over time. Right. Yeah. Uh, so what does the left do to or is it too late, you know, to kind of. Uh, I, it reminds yeah. listening to this reminds me of I wrote a book a toxic talk about yep. what happened to talk radio. That's right. With it, they went out and bought all the stations, bought the network, and they dominated. I mean, way way dominated the number of right wing talk radio. Shows it's exactly the parallel to what you talk about yeah. in your book. Yeah. it's it, it it totally is. It's just a different medium, but it's ultimately the same tactics that were that were employed. And then the su the subject matter and the content of the programming, in this case, the the content then has a, an effect on the culture, on the people who are consuming it, which then becomes a feedback loop that reinforces that structural imbalance. Um, so what I think the What's left ironic is, about yeah. that is, is when Donald Trump s says fake news, there really is a lot of fake news out there. It's yeah. just not coming from the people that he's accusing that's right. of fake news. I mean, what it right? is, is it's a dis... And that's where, where I think the big shift for, for me has come in, is that it, this is disinformation. Um, that is fundamentally anti-democratic and dangerous. Um, and and but yeah, there is a large network out there, and that's you know the reason why it worked is because of the imbalance on talk radio and Fox News for all these years. I mean, the audience itself was primed to believe that Barack Obama banned the Pledge of Allegiance. So when you know you see a post that says that, you want to click it mm -hmm. um, because you know if if they had not been consuming you know that kind of content for a decade. Uh, when they saw that post, I don't have resonance. You know, Hillary Clinton murders another person. I don't know if they would have been like, oh, yeah, that sounds credible, if they weren't hearing it day in and day out from totally. talk radio and totally. Fox News. Totally. So, they, they, they created the, uh, you know, the climate, the atmosphere right. where that, that, that was. So, so what, does it, what does it say or what does it mean when we have um, a president whose entire 
administration is basically driven by Fox and Friends in the morning. It's scary. Um, but that's, it's, it's also true, I mean, it's right? It's completely that, true. I mean, we've, yeah. we, we've tracked it where he live tweets it. Um, you know, he, and sometimes we could see if he's watching Matt, it. Matt Gertz did that Matt, great yeah. study of watching right. Fox and Friends and, and Donald Trump's tweets for six months or something that's like right. that. That's right. God I bless mean, him. It's insane. I mean, it really is. It tracks so neatly with where, uh, you know, with what he is tweeting out because he's watching the segments. And you could actually see what time he woke up, how much of a delay he's on. It's that this, this, precise. This non-veto, right? Right. Last weekend was a, on on Friday. Fox and Friends in the morning. They're critical of the spending bill, which he's poised to sign. They've announced that he's going to sign it. Mick Mulvaney comes in the briefing room and says the president's fully behind this. He sees critic criticism of it on Fox and Friends in the morning. They said, "Damn it, I'm not going to sign that turkey." That's right. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> and you know, because he wakes up and he's watching it, and he just he wants to respond because he is really, you know, I think. And if you're Donald Trump, uh, the one thing that I think to, to why Fox and Friends matters so much to him to a degree is that that is really how Donald Trump became a a, a, a someone who could have a, appeal to conservatives. I mean, he did a regular segment with Fox and Friends mm-hmm. every Monday for years. Um, and prior to that, he was just another phone, Hollywood, uh, phone uh, occasionally in, in studio. You know, prior to that, he was just another Hollywood liberal billionaire, you know, who had a, you know, he was a tough guy who fired people, but they really were the ones that let him go up there and talk uh, to about politics to the conservative audience and really give him a, the Fox News stamp of approval. Mm-hmm. And he really does see Fox News, mm-hmm. and in particular Fox and Friends, as having uh, the is being sort of like the single largest overlap with the core of his, of his constituency. And he thinks if he loses Fox and Friends, then it means that he's lost the zeitgeist of his own people. I am amazed that he hasn't hired Andrew Napolitano as his legal advisor. I am a little bit surprised about that as well, um, to to an extent. Uh, I think that you know he he's always on a list for some appointment, you know. But yeah, uh, I I remain some. I I think it would be tough for him to get there in some capacity. Napolitano has disagreed with him on some of the constitutional authoritarianism stuff, which I think makes it a mm-hmm. non-starter. I was really surprised when they first talked about D.G. Devani because he's been a Fox News regular, but he's actually somebody that they have been pushing to be the second special counsel. Um, uh, and so I, that's why I was very surprised that he was like, well, he should join my legal team because I, I always assumed that if they were going to go down that trajectory, that that's who he would have ended up appointing because it's the Fox News favorite for the second special counsel. Right. Well, um, we don't know what happened. Do, to Geneva, by the way. To Geneva. You were giving it uh, probably. Uh, more, the, I was giving him more Italian than. You yeah. were giving him the That's official right. Italian That's right. pronunciation, but uh, <laughs> he, he and I went to high school together, so I go to Geneva. But um, uh, he apparently, uh, when Trump liked him on television and when he met him in person, he didn't, Did. like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> didn't like him so much. So it doesn't always work. Right? No, right, right. Because it's TV. It's fake. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> so he hasn't learned that yet. Right. No, he hasn't know. picked up on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I remember uh, the, the late uh, Bob Novak at uh, Crossfire. People always used to ask me. Is Bob as obnoxious in person as he is on TV? And of course, I would say yes, <laughs> and he loved that. You know, that was part of his part of his uh, part of his reputation. But it is it is it, we've never we've never had anybody certainly in the presidency who's so media driven. No, I mean, and and wouldn't be there without the media, right? That's a, without a doubt. They they own this, and the cable news in particular owns this, and uh, in, uh, in the same way that they own the Iraq War. Honestly, and that the lead up to it. 
they really built it and pushed it in a way that was wildly inconsistent with any editorial or journalistic standards, um, was self-serving uh, uh, and, and reckless. N- not to mention it had nothing to do with the truth. That's right. And right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It had nothing to do with the no, truth. No, the whole thing about Absolutely. the buildup, the nuclear weapons, yep. the smoking cloud. I mean, all that. And yeah. it's the same thing here. I mean, so they just replicated a very similar set of mistakes. Wow. That is a... Whew. I, I, that's, that's, that's something. Kind of, that is hard to <laughs> that is hard to swallow. And I'm walk not sure away what from. it is, but it's that something. the media owns the, the Donald Trump administration the same way the media owns the Iraq War. Yeah, I think that's that. That's how I look at it. That they may have sort of recovered a little bit, and there wasn't really another big major. You know, you could always have criticisms, but if but but it, you know, in fifty, a hundred years from now, when we look back, right before the media hits us, um, you know, those will be the two things that that I think. It will be undeniably owned by cable news and the, the current media. Media Matters for America. Again, Angelo, great job. Thanks so much Thanks for so coming much. in today. Um, at MediaMatters.org. And uh, Eliza Collins joins us next from USA Today. Talk about uh, what uh, <laughs> train wreck we saw on Capitol Hill last week with the spending bill. We'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Indeed, on a Monday, March 26th, the Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital. Right here in Washington, D.C. Great to see you today. Thank you for joining us. We're coming to you live from our studio on Capitol Hill. Brought to you today by the International Association of Firefighters. Those great men and women of our firefighting departments that we count on every day, they never let us down, protecting America families Every day under the leadership of President Harold Schaitberger, and we salute them, thank them for their support of the program. Congress is out of town this week and next week, I believe. Eliza Collins, that means she's got the next two weeks off. Not quite. (laughs) (laughs) She covers Congress for USA Today and joins us in studio. Hi, Liza. Nice to see you. Hi, nice to see you. You can go back and tell Susan Page that I told you that you've got the next two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be, you know, thanks. I'm actually going to go out of town, Susan. So, Uh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Although our hours are better when we're in recess. No 1 a.m. votes, which is what we had last week. Yeah, no, that's pretty good. So, um, they they wound up with this big spending bill, uh, and they thought they had a deal with um, the Donald Trump to sign the bill, and then Donald Trump wakes up Friday morning and says, I'm not going to sign that stinker. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. And the day before, the White House had kind of fanned out all their circuits, because, of course, this is a really massive bill that Republicans didn't really like, especially fiscal Republicans, and Trump had kind of given them cover. But wait a minute. Are there any more fiscally responsible there, there are there any more deficit hawks? The Freedom Caucus guys, they did not vote for this bill because they said it was very expensive. Now you can make the argument they did vote for tax reform, which cost about the same amount, or will add to the deficit about the same amount. Um, you know, they have their reasoning. Right. But yeah. they needed a bipartisan group to get this over the edge because of these fiscal conservatives wouldn't vote for it. So, the, so it would not have passed without Democratic votes is what you're saying? Yes, definitely not. It had, I think, a majority of both parties, but um, there were significant chunks of both the right and left that did not vote for this. So what did Democrats get out of this deal? They got a lot, actually. They They did. They do. Both Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi said that there was was a good deal. Exactly. Well, overall, this is a massive spending bill, and it... Basically, it had a massive bump in military spending, which is what Republicans wanted. 
But Democrats got a huge bump kind of in response in domestic spending. And for a Republican majorities and a Republican president, this was pretty significant. They got opioid funding. They got veterans funding. They also got a lot of different things like, yeah, Trump got $1.6 billion for border security, but he can't use any of it for a cement wall. Or ICE got more money, but he can't do agents. So they kind of, even Republican wins. They can't do... They can't get um, interior agents, enforcement agents. It has to go towards um, sort of more internal payroll stuff. Right, right, okay. So even Republican, quote-unquote, wins, Democrats were able to have um, a say. They got the Gateway Tunnel, not all of it, but they did get money to start funding that. Uh, And they didn't get DACA. They did not get DACA, and that is not a win for them. That is a big deal. No, that was sort of the number one thing, right? This is what the third or fourth time— there's been yeah. an opportunity to either shut down the government or not have a bill or whatever because there's no DACA in it. And yet, once again, they said, okay, well, we'll what, what's the status of DACA now? I mean, the deadline, the artificial deadline that's that Donald Trump on. gave them, March 5, came and went. And right. DACA still limps along under, under there's the a court. status of they, they can't, they can take renewals, but no new members. Is that exactly, what it is? Exactly. So, um, Lawmakers basically say it's not as urgent anymore because the court is providing, saying that it can keep going. What advocates say is, yeah, it can keep going for the people who already have it, you know, 690,000. But there are a chunk of them who kind of just got caught in bad timing. Their status is expired before it came back. We're not sure how many, but there are people who are just stuck in limbo right now. And then, of course, there's like 3 million undocumented immigrants who came to the U.S. as children um, and did not qualify for DACA because they were either too old when it started or, you know, DACA was under 16. There's a Mm -hmm. whole bunch of people who were under 18. Um, And so, you know, advocates say this is actually not enough of an excuse, but that's what lawmakers are kind of using at this point. Democrats are hoping to say it's not urgent enough that we could shut the government down again. I'm not sure how that argument plays. So was Donald Trump ever serious? As we talked with Angelo Carasone in the last uh, half hour, um, he's watching Fox and Friends. Mm -hmm. It's very similar to that um, last December with the FISA bill. Yes. Where yes. The, they were going to vote on it that he day. Tweeted. He was totally for it. And then he watches Fox and Friends, and Andrew Napolitano says, I don't know why Trump's supporting this thing, you know? And then Trump tweets out, This is a terrible bill, right? Right, right. I just, think... When just the day before the White House had announced his support for it. So this is the same thing. He's watching Fox and Friends. The spending bill, which Mick Mulvaney came in the briefing room, told us he's going to sign it. Exactly. He supports it. And then the next morning he tweets out he is, uh, that he might veto it. I mean, w- w- what happened on the Hill then? I mean, well, they, they were must have all gone out. nuts. Huh? Well, they were all home oh, they were out. because right. they yeah. thought he was going to sign it. They thought. Yeah. So the day before the House had passed it, they all went, actually, Friday morning, they went to Louis Slaughter's funeral. Um, so the House was not only not there, but they were all somewhere else that was, you know, this sad event, not. Yeah. Trying to deal with actually very right. bipartisan community. The Senate last very last minute voted at like 12 something yeah. midnight um, and they went home they went and home. they had codels. And so everyone was gone. Um, so the hill was quiet. But and well, Paul Ryan, didn't he run down to the White House to, 
or or call him, I guess. I, I think he called him, although he could have gone over. But I think there was a real panic. I mean, Mike Pence, Ivanka Trump, the day before were fanning out at events saying, here are all our wins. And um, even that morning, I had actually gone to the White House for a meeting and talk, you know, just trying to talk to folks there. I'm like, what's going to happen? And everyone was sort of like, it's we'll just talk about it later. Like, I don't think anyone knew he had surprised them, similar to the FISA thing. Um, he woke up and decided he heard that he didn't get enough wins on immigration, I think is really what it was on the wall. And, well, and if he okay. had not signed it, the government would have shut down. Right. And that nobody was there. And Congress <laughs> is weird in the way that, like, you can't just call a vote from afar. People can't call in. No, they need no. to show back up. So some of these people that set off for foreign countries have to turn around and come home. And there's no way all of that, all the paperwork, all the rewriting of whatever they needed to rewrite, negotiating, the government would have shut down. And by the way, there, there would have Too been... Too bad he didn't. I know. It. No, I, 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 mean, I was secretly been. hoping that he would. I mean, I know it would suck for, yeah, for the no, shutdown a lot purposes, of people, but, just, but there would be no way to get around the fact that this would have been a Trump shutdown. Right. You can't blame it on the Democrats. You can't blame it on the Republicans in Congress. You could only blame it on Trump. Full stop. Which, by the way, somebody at the White House must have yeah. said, hey, yeah. Dodo, you can't do this. So yeah. Here's why. Right. Uh, because you're right. It would have been totally his baby. Right. Well, and his argument was interesting because he said, I'm shutting it down because there's not enough wall money and there's not a solution for DACA, which let's forget or let's not forget the DACA is his self-made problem. He ended yes. that program. Right. And so he's been using this all along. Democrats don't want to fix it. Democrats don't want to fix it. And you could argue that Democrats aren't fighting as hard as maybe they've said they would to fix it. But that doesn't mean Trump offered one plan. It was not Democrats felt it was not no. a fair plan. Right. It's not like he's been offering all of these options and Democrats are no. sitting there with their arms no, no, crossed. No, no, right. Exactly. I mean, so, so DACA's working. He breaks it break, busts it up right mm-hmm. it's not broken until he says it uh, i'm going to throw it to congress and, and give them six months to deal with it and then once it's there then he uses it saying okay you want the, you want to restore this program? Right. then give me 24 billion for my wall right right uses that a bargaining chip for his wall. and the other thing is there is fair like i've been covering the stock issue in congress there is a lot of overlap in both parties where they agree but Trump will kind of scuttle things. So they get really close that, remember, the gang of six yeah, um, yeah. bipartisan deal. And then Trump decides he doesn't like it. And then they come. And so Trump has all along been scuttling these plans. And this was another offer. There was a back and forth with um, the Democrats negotiating. Trump wanted $25 billion for his wall, mm-hmm. which is the full amount he wants in exchange for two and a half years of legal protections for um People who the DACA recipients, so not that broader group, and the Democrats said, "We'll give you twenty-five billion, but we want path to citizenship for that group." And White House said no, so both sides said nope, and that just was not in the bill. Right, uh, and also when he um, announced, like he didn't sign it publicly so much, right? He had signed it, and then he just showed it off that he had signed it or something. But he did say, I'll never do this again. Right. Nobody had a chance to read this bill. It's only 17 hours old. Right, right. <laughs> Which but was it, really a, sticking it to Paul Ryan, right? Right. Who, who did bypass regular rules, regular orders, you know, that old chant about read the bill, read the bill. They just but rushed I, this you thing could argue, through. It wasn't just Paul Ryan. It was all four leaders who sat true, in the room and true. decided right. they're going to push That's this right. through. Good point. That was yeah. a bipartisan uh, messing up yeah. that, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was is, fascinating. Is, is, is there, um, 
some people speculated that they really rushed this through because they felt that they had to get out of town before the March for Our Lives. Uh, I was in a press conference with Mitch McConnell where he was asked that. I mean, he did not he didn't address it, but I'm sure that was an underlying thing. I think they had to get this through because the government shut down at midnight. Um, I think that is number one. And because it looks really bad that we've had so many CRs, we've had a government shutdown, and here they've had five weeks with a framework. They knew how much they could spend, mm-hmm. and they still were going yeah. out to the wire. Right. But I don't think that it was any reason to stay for Republican lawmakers to know that you know nearly a million people were going to come and demand something that they do not stand for. So um, what sense do you have that— um this movement, the, the, what what the Parkland students have been able to stir up around the country, uh, penetrates Capitol Hill uh, and these congressional Republicans, particularly at all. It was very powerful to be, and I was there right in front of the stage um, Saturday, um, to to look through the stage behind those speakers. The Capitol was the United States Capitol, right. and and. Uh, Every one of them had had that message. Peter, maybe let's just uh, with uh, what David Hogue, that second um, clip where he talks about the, the message for politicians. When politicians send their thoughts and prayers with no action, we say no more. And to those politicians supported by the NRA that allow the continued slaughter of our children and our future, I say get your resumes ready. <laughs> That and then every time that they would chant, vote them out, right, vote them right. out, and there they are standing right in front of the Capitol. You know, it yeah. was it was very very powerful. Does did that message reach the House office building and the Senate office buildings? I don't think it cannot reach them. I mean, I think that some of these really conservative lawmakers are not going to be touched by this. Um, but I do think, especially senators, where you represent a much larger portion, a whole state. Um, and not some small gerrymandered congressional district, you've got to be feeling it. I mean, we're seeing Marco Rubio is feeling the heat. How he's responding is kind of all over the place. If Marco Rubio were running for re-election this year, he would lose. He would be in trouble, I think. He'd be in trouble for sure. And we're seeing, I mean, the governor of Florida, who is likely going to run, we're seeing, I mean, he signed a bill that raised the age on buying weapons. This is someone with an A from the NRA. Um, they're noticing this. And some of these House districts that are suburban, that Hillary won or Trump won by one point, you, they've got to be feeling the heat. And we talk about— I think that's the, the, that's the where it's going to be felt most, in the suburban, suburban Republican districts where mothers and— It's the mo- Yeah, it's the suburban. moms are saying, yeah, damn right I want our kids to be protected. And we've talked about this a lot. Um, suburban moms, <laughs> white married women— tend to vote Republican, but not necessarily because they feel very strongly about Republican, but, you know, their husband might vote Republican. And that um, I've been told taxes and terrorism. They're worried about sort of providing mm-hmm. enough for their family and taking care of their family. And during 2016, ISIS was a huge issue. Um, tough, Trump talked tough on terrorism. Now guns, that's terrorism. And these moms might not be very hard for them to suddenly switch. They're already frustrated with the president. They're already frustrated with the partisanship in Washington. And now people are saying, let's just have some common sense gun reform, I think, to watch the white married suburban woman in these districts. In, 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 in 2018. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you were up in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania 18th. I was. And um, Connor Lamb, now officially 
the winter, right? right? Took a little um, while. And uh, he's in until what? Uh, d- November. November, and then he's running in his new district. He's <laughs> not running in the same district. Not running in the same district because Pennsylvania, um, it was ruled that their districts were unconstitutionally gerrymandered. They were redrawn. And while Pennsylvania is definitely a purple sort of swing state, um, right now there is a disproportionate number of Republicans in office for how many Democrats are in the state. And so it was redrawn. And now there's a real chance that it, if Democrats win all the seats that they could win, kind of looking at the different numbers, it could go about half and half. Which um, is kind of what the registration party registration right, is right. in Pennsylvania. And that's a chance for Democrats to pick up a lot of seats. Mm-hmm. And um, so Connor Lamb won the 18th district. The 18th district, as we know, it will be gone. It'll be much smaller and it'll be called the 14th district. It'll be very Republican. Um, so it's expected Rick Saccone, who lost, will run for that district. He's such a great candidate. Um, and then his party would um, agree with you on that. They were quick yeah, to throw him yeah. under the bus. <laughs> um, and then Connor <laughs> Lamb will run in the 17th, which is where his under the redrawn map he lives. And that's much more competitive. There's currently a sitting Republican there, but um, it'll only be like R plus maybe two or three points, which is a lot more of a competitive race. So he has a chance, and he'll be a congressman-elect, so it'll be two incumbents running against each other. Oh, He'll be a congressman at that point. At that point, Yeah, right. yeah. so it'll... He'll be a, yeah, he'll be a member of Congress right. at that so point. so he'll be running against Keith Rothfuss, yeah. he, who's He's got to be sworn in. He hasn't already been sworn in, right? I no, mean, he's now... I, I think, imagine after recess. Because remember, Rick Saccone didn't even... Concede. Um, concede but, until the end of last week. Yeah, and I think if officially the four counties didn't... Finish their whatever count of absentee ballots until then. So because it was only like six hundred votes. By the way, I I hate the bus. Uh I just want to read because Donald Trump is Uh tweeting this morning. He didn't tweet at all about the Stormy Daniels stuff uh, yesterday. He didn't tweet at all about the March for Our Lives, but he did tweet this morning just uh, just a couple moments ago. So much fake news. Capital capital letters. Never been more. I'm shocked he spelled this correctly. Never been more voluminous or more inaccurate. But through it all, our country is doing great. Now, he doesn't specify if that's about Stormy Daniels. Yeah, I was going to say, what fake news it is he complaining be, about now? It could be about a lot of things. Right, his cabinet, His lo- he now has one lawyer <laughs> representing him, right? The New York Times reported it could be Stormy Daniels. I'm sorry, though. I just I cannot really wrap my head around the fact that he spelled voluminous correctly on the first try. Well, there was an article recently about how many errors he does have in his tweets, so maybe he's taking about, a little bit more time. Misspelling, right? Yeah. Maybe he's, he constantly he's... misspells stuff. Well, I would imagine there's a thesaurus or a dictionary around the White House somewhere. I mean, he's got autocorrect on his oh, phone, he's got and autocorrect. he still That's misspells right. stuff. I know, I know. So <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I hear you. Maybe he's taking a, another step. Well, I wouldn't. Uh, I put too much. Yeah. Too much stock in it. That this is the new. <laughs> yeah. No, but I, you, you do wonder, what is he talking about in terms of fake news? Is it that, that there's going to be a shakeup at the White House? I mean, the fact is, when you talk about disarray at the White House, in the last few weeks, right, he has <laughs> fired his secretary of state, his chief economic advisor, or they've fired or, or walked right. out, his chief economic advisor, um, his chief, nas- the national security advisor, uh, Hope Hicks, his, commu- his communications right. director, his 
two of his top aides. Yeah, Josh Raphael is another communications director. Uh, Ivanka and Jared's communications director. Is that right? He's out yeah, too. he le- well, he left um, as well. I mean, so this is, this is yeah, it's been constant turmoil. Right. And and everybody expects that David Shulkin will his right. head will roll this week, and and then John Kelly, his name keeps. Nobody says that he's on solid ground. Right. right. And that's the problem with this White House is with many of those people you mentioned a week or two before <laughs> there was reporting so-and-so is probably out or on the outs. And the White House comes out and says that's not true. That's wrong. Trump tweets that it's incorrect. I love Rex Tillerson or whatever. And then, yeah. and then a week later they're gone. And so yeah. it's hard as a reporter to take much stock into what they say. And um, it's hard, I think, as an American to watch and feel confident that things are how they say they are. Uh, yeah. In fact, I was I was remembering this weekend that last year at this time, the meme, I guess, right, that everybody was saying, the, the common wisdom was, okay, Trump's sort of like out of control, but there are three grown-ups around, so don't worry, right? There's Rex Tillerson, there's H.R. McMaster, and James Mattis. Remember that? We talked about that. Yeah. So there were only these three days. grown-ups yeah. that would keep him in line, right? Well, guess what? Two of them are gone. And I think people threw Gary Cohn in there often as well, because at least with trade and things like that, Gary Cohn was like free Gary trader, Cohn. not okay. a... Okay. Well, he's gone so, too. Right, right, right. 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 So just it throw four. another one. Three out of four, four are, gone. are gone. Right. And uh, and and some people are worried that uh, with John Bolton coming in, that James, Mattis could just say, "No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to put up with this. This guy, you know, who's just wild and wants to use military anywhere on the planet. He hasn't met a country yet. He doesn't want to invade <laughs> John Bolton, right? Uh, that Mattis just might say, "This is not. I don't want to be part of this. Don't know. But at any rate, right now, three out of four are gone. Right." Right. And not to mention all the other people who are gone. And it's hard to want to hire for that White House, I'd imagine. It's not like people are jumping to go. Especially, mm-hmm. I think about like a ho- replacing Hope Hicks. I mean, they've got to hire from within, I imagine, because who would want to go do well, communication strategy when the president has his own communication strategy? Well, look at the problem that he's having getting a lawyer. Right. I mean, he's hired every every major. I mean, he's interviewed. Tried, right. Interviewed every major law firm in the city, and nobody yet has has taken up his offer. Nobody wants, and and so he hires Joe DeGeneva and Victoria Tunzing. He announces a week ago today, okay. and then over the weekend he says, "No, I changed my mind. I'm not going to hire them after all." They didn't even get in the door, right? They right. They didn't even get their. Yeah, I wonder what that was about. But. All kinds of speculation. That uh, that when he met Joe um, in person, that he was not as impressed in person as he was by watching him on television. It should be pointed really? out, by the way. It should be pointed out, by the way, that Joe DeGeneva has facial hair, and we hey, we know how much Donald Trump hates facial hair. Could have been that. Joe has the mustache. Yeah. Well, John Bolton. Yeah, hasn't. I was just yeah, going to say, but, no, fair, but he just fair. hired John Bolton. That's fair. John Bolton hasn't shaved his yet, has he? No. Okay. Yet. So. Uh, <laughs> Back to your regular beat on Congress. <laughs> Some people said, I mean, I've heard it said that, okay, so they passed and he signed, reluctantly maybe, the big spending. Mm-hmm. Is that it for Congress this year? Well, why? Major legislation. Last year they had one bill, Ta- which was taxes, the tax cut. Right. The um, entire year, one bill. Uh, is this their one bill for this year? 
I can't see many other bills making it. I think they'll see some bipartisan small little things. I think you'll see <laughs> some small infrastructure pieces, but I don't imagine there'll be a big There's not going to be a trillion dollar no. uh, infrastructure plan. And the other thing that's tough is Oh, that, I know. Maybe they'll pass a big bill dealing with climate change. Yeah. <laughs> jump on that one. Yeah, jump um, on that one. And the other thing is they even something like I don't know, maybe some infrastructure, some bill that maybe they could get bipartisan support, although I think that'd be really hard, would be in the Senate that would be giving red state Democrats a win. And Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell is very aware of giving red state Democrats something that they can say, we worked with Republicans, we worked with President Trump on. And so then that sort of in some way gives them a pass for not voting for tax reform or health care. So there's a real... um, you know, trying to keep these red state Democrats from getting wins. And then in the House, protecting these vulnerable members who are, they're very vulnerable. And of course, you're seeing conservatives just furious about this spending bill, furious at their leadership, calling, I mean, so, they spent, they want to repeal Obamacare again, which will not happen. Uh, so um, it, it, it could very well happen that this is the one major bill that Congress will pass this year, and they might as well take the rest of the year off because they're not going to get anything done. Well, and we think we saw, yeah. I mean, after the Pennsylvania election, to bring it back to that, Rick Saccone could not fundraise. He had a very yeah. difficult time fundraising. Right. Not could not. But. He raised some money, but not compl- close mm-hmm. to Connor Lamb. And so Republicans are now going out and saying, you need to be out there. You need to be campaigning. Yeah. You need to be fundraising. That takes more time. That's time they're not here. That's time they're not here, right. Bills. All right. So enjoy your next two weeks off. Thank you. <laughs> Alyssa, thanks back. so much for coming in. Thank you follow, you. of course, at USA, usatoday.com. Uh, don't forget, folks, out in the Chicago area, April 4, at the Frugal Muse Bookstore in Darien, Illinois, talking about my new book, From the Left, Life in the Crossfire. Have a great Monday. Come back and see us tomorrow. This we'll be looking for you. This is the Bill Press Show.